Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be here on ADH-TV for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week, and boy, do we have a bumper show for you tonight. Joining me is former Nationals MP George Christensen to discuss the exciting election of libertarian populist Javier Malay in the recent Argentinian election, as well as the release of all 40,000 hours of footage from the January 6th Capitol riot and what that might mean for January 6th defendants and the upcoming U.S. election. Founder of Nuclear for Australia, Will Shackle, will also join me to discuss his upcoming trip to COP28 to petition the Australian delegation to include nuclear power in Australia's energy future. But first... There's been a new trend on the Chinese-owned social media app TikTok over the past week. Put simply, certain Generation Z TikTok users, that is, people under the age of about 24, have a new hero to look up to. And no, it's not Greta Thunberg. It is, of all people, Osama bin Laden. Yes. Members of the younger generation have uncovered the letter to America bin Laden wrote in 2002, outlining the reasons why he plotted and executed the 9-11 terrorist attack on the World Trade Center in 2001. The letter was published by The Guardian at the time, and until the other day was still available on the site for people to access. After reading Bin Laden's letter, these Gen said kiddies have decided their minds have been like literally blown by the supposedly erudite, philosophical, enlightening, opining within. Now, of course, any normal person who reads Bin Laden's letter will see it for what it is, an anti-Western, anti-Semitic diatribe written by a psychopathic mass murderer attempting to justify the killing of nearly 3,000 people. But this new generation are viewing Osama's offering through a more academic lens, unencumbered as they are with the burden of having been born before the 9-11 attack and therefore experiencing it in real time. The viral trend appeared to start with a social media influencer called Lynette Adkins, who posted this video on TikTok. I need everyone to stop what they're doing right now and go read. It's literally two pages. Go read a letter to America. And please come back here and just let me know what you think because I feel like I'm going through like an existential crisis right now. And a lot of people are. So I just need someone else to be feeling this too. This quickly inspired other Gen Z TikTok users to source the letter, read it, and post their reactions on TikTok. Here is just a few samples. Actually, before you even read the letter, I did want to mention, in reading the letter, I could only think of this tweet that I saw the other day. Under settler colonialism, any kind of resistance is branded as terrorist because the only acceptable violence is violence by the occupier. So please keep that in mind when reading the letter. Um, we really need to stop paying taxes because they ain't doing nothing but messing up everybody else and, and America is the bully. And it's sad because they have brainwashed us to think that we was the best country in the planet, on the planet. When in reality, we're the worst fucking country in the planet. It is just insane because this letter 
is so well written and so reasonably structured um, in an argument. Like you got to present your findings, you got to, you know, you got to state your cause, all that. Like everything he said was valid. Go read a letter to America. Like seriously, go read it. Type a letter to America in Google or whatever you use then come right back because this makes a lot more sense. It explains so much and I guarantee you it's going to blow your mind. And let's talk about it. So go read it, come back. Whew, it's a lot. It's a lot. Hey, 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 hey. Are you even paying attention to me right now? I read Osama bin Laden's letter to America. The way this letter is going viral right now is giving me the greatest sense of relief. If you're Muslim and you've lived in the U.S. since 9-11, you know more truth than the typical citizen. Now it's all coming to light because of Palestine. Now, you might be wondering how are we in a situation where the younger generation appears to be identifying with the writings of a murderous fascistic terrorist? The answer is Palestine. As we've seen, the general consensus on the progressive left in light of the Israel-Hamas conflict is to oppose Israel under the guise of supporting Palestine. And in his letter, bin Laden says one of the chief reasons al-Qaeda attacked America was because of US support of Israel. To quote from the letter, the creation and continuation of Israel is one of the greatest crimes, and you are the leaders of its criminals. And of course, there is no need to explain and prove the degree of American support for Israel. The creation of Israel is a crime which must be erased. Each and every person whose hands have become polluted in the contribution towards this crime must pay its price and pay for it heavily. So, given the general tenor of the anti-Israel commentary coming from JZ progressives, you can imagine how this part of the letter tickled their fancy. Despite the fact this reaction is beyond infuriating, it is worth unpacking, as the left likes to say. There has been a temptation from some commentators throughout the past week to say these TikTok users are supporting Osama bin Laden, or at least agreeing with his justification of September 11th. That's not what I've read into it. Many of these young people seem to be blinded by identity politics and also, dare I say it, American exceptionalism, which certainly permeated American culture during their formative childhood years. These young people appear to have been told their whole lives that the reason Al-Qaeda attacked the World Trade Center was simply because bin Laden and his cronies hated America, hated its morals, its freedoms and its way of life, and thus sought to destroy it. They seemed completely unaware in posting these videos that there was any kind of geopolitical situation underpinning the attack until they read bin Laden's letter. This young lady gives a good summation. I'm actually glad somebody brought this up. The way that the internet has been bugging out about Osama bin Laden's letter to America proves to me how influential anti-terror education has been post 9-11. The government will have you believe that people commit acts of terror because they're evil, that some people are born evil, that they have hatred and anger in their body for no reason. They hate America, they hate infidels, 
They hate people who aren't Muslim. They hate women. They hate queer people. They hate how accepting and free America is. That's not true at all. That doesn't make any sense. Before I continue, I don't support terrorism. The point that I'm making is that it happens for a reason. Whether you like it or not, terrorism is a form of violent resistance against an oppressive government or occupying force. Always. The United States is a victim of terrorism in the case of 9-11 because of how much land and power they occupied in the Middle East. There is terrorism occurring in Palestine and Israel right now because Palestinians and by extension Hamas have been victims of an oppressive, violent, apartheid government regime. When you have oppressive governments or occupying forces, it pushes people to a point where this is their only option. That doesn't make it okay, but that does make it what happens. Now, it's clear this girl and those who agree with her have a total ignorance of radical Islam and its history, and certainly no idea of bin Laden or Al-Qaeda. They obviously don't know that bin Laden Laden founded Al-Qaeda in 1988 for the sole purpose of enacting global jihad in order to install a worldwide Islamic caliphate. With that in mind, these young people have also forgotten that it's possible for two things to be true at once. That is... While it's true there may have been geopolitical conditions that caused different nations to attack each other at the time, as there have been for the entirety of human history in various contexts, it is also true that bin Laden and al-Qaeda would have attacked America anyway, because America, and by proxy the West, stand in the way of the instigation of the Islamic Caliphate, both morally and practically. Bin Laden's letter says so when it demands America turn to Islam as a precondition for al-Qaeda to cease its attacks. Should America fall to the caliphate, the the rest of the West would certainly follow. The letter also clearly outlines that Bin Laden does, in fact, hate America simply for being America. The letter is a denunciation of American capitalism and liberal democracy, Not only that, the letter rejects American secularism and calls for the reunification of church and state. You are the nation who, rather than ruling by the Sharia of Allah in its constitution and laws, choose to invent your own laws as you will and desire. You separate religion from your policies, contradicting the pure nature which affirms absolute authority to the Lord and your creator. This is the antithesis of the Enlightenment tradition of the separation of church and state, which progressives in America have been, for the past several years, kvetching over thanks to Republicans implementing anti-abortion laws and overturning Roe v. Wade. Then, of course, there's Bin Laden's condemnation of sexual liberation and also of being gay, which are also two pinnacles of progressivism. We call you to be a people of manners, principles, honour and purity, to reject the immoral acts of fornication, homosexuality, intoxicants, gamblings and trading with interest. Not to mention the passage where Bin Laden effectively says American women should get back in the proverbial kitchen. 
You are a nation that exploits women like consumer products or advertising tools, calling upon customers to purchase them. You use women to serve passengers, visitors, and strangers to increase your profit margins. You then rant that you support the liberation of women. Goodness me, that doesn't sound very progressive, does it? And then, of course, there is the rank anti-Semitism of the whole thing, despite the fact that progressives have been swearing black and blue that just because they support Palestine doesn't mean they're anti-Semitic. You are the nation that permits usury, which has been forbidden by all the religions. Yet you build your economy and investments on usury. As a result of this, in all its different forms and guises, the Jews have taken control of your economy, through which they have then taken control of your media and now control all aspects of your life, making you their servants and achieving their aims at your expense. Now, given the aforementioned contents of Bin Laden's letter, all of which comes after the segment on Palestine, I'm left wondering, did these Generation Z TikTok enthusiasts even read the whole letter? Or did they just stop reading after their views on Israel and Palestine were affirmed? Given the pipsqueak length of their attention spans, my guess is the latter. Well, we've seen from events like the election of Giorgio Maloney in Italy that right-wing populism is on the rise in Europe and, of course, most recently, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands. Now it is South America's turn, thanks to the most recent election results in Argentina. The Argentines have voted in, for lack of a better term, an uber-libertarian named Javier Millet, who is also known as the Whig, the Madman, the Lion, and Argentina's Donald Trump. With a flair for the theatrical, the humble chainsaw became emblematic during his campaign, symbolic of his plan to effectively take a chainsaw to Argentina's public sector, which would involve, govern which would involve slashing government spending from 38% to 23% of the nation's GDP. Not only that, he wants to get rid of Argentina's central bank which he has called the worst thing in the universe, align the nation with America and Israel and eliminate the national currency, the peso, and swap it to the US dollar. But it's his brawling in the trenches of the culture war that has really caught the world's attention, as demonstrated in this clip, which went viral a few months ago. Al zurdo de mierda no le podés dar ni un pero, milímetro. Pero ¿Me puede definir zurdo de mierda que no Todos lo los que, digamos, los colectivistas, <risa> los que ponen, digamos, o sea, esa idea. A ver, ¿Por qué es? le pones de mierda, digamos? Porque son una mierda. O pero sea, si, clas... no, pero, pero es que si pensás descalifica... no, distinto te van, a, te van a aniquilar. Ese es el punto. Es decir, vos al zurdo no le podés dar un milímetro. Porque le das un milímetro y lo toma para destrozarte. Es decir, usa, digo, o sea, vos no podés negociar con el zurdo. No se negocia. No se negocia con esa mierda, no se negocia porque te van a llevar pues. You most certainly get the picture. He's also wonderfully tough on China, and unlike our mincing pro-China PM Anthony Albanese, Malay calls the CCP out for what they are. 
Y en cuanto a China, ¿es uno de los socios principales de comercio? De... Bueno, serán socios comerciales de los, del sector privado. Nosotros no hacemos pacto con comunistas. Pero entonces, ¿qué harías? O sea, ¿no ¿cerrarías las relaciones de Argentina con, con China? Yo no promovería la relación con comunistas, ni con Cuba, ni con Venezuela, ni con Corea del Norte, ni con Nicaragua, ni con China. O sea, para Venezuela vas a cambiar la política. Ahí, Obviamente. Claramente. It is, to say the least an incredibly exciting development in global politics. And joining me to celebrate Javier Millet's victory and speculate as to his future is former Federal Nationals MP, George Christensen. George, it's fabulous to have you here tonight. How are you? I'm doing very well, Daisy. Even better to know that uh, liberty and freedom is spreading around the world. <laughs> Yes, indeed. It's a very, very good day indeed. Now, George, there have been, obviously, comparisons made between Javier Millet and, of course, Donald Trump. Do you think the likeness goes beyond their striking appearances and fun radical <laughs> rhetoric and also extends towards their policies? Yeah, well, the, the hairdo sort of gives it away <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but, but uh, look, I think there is a similarity there. They're both... Uh, complete political outsiders and they've both sort of come out of nowhere with rhetoric that is, um, you know, sparking this uh, uh, wildfire amongst the people of Argentina, same with uh, in 2016 when Donald Trump's rhetoric sparked a wildfire with, uh, you know, blue-collar America. So I think that there are a lot of similarities and it will remain to be seen, um, you know, how uh, Javier Malay goes about implementing uh, what he said he's going to do during the campaign. Uh, you know, unfortunately, when someone gets elected, they become a politician. Mm. Uh, and uh, having been a politician, I know that you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. It gets kind of boring. It gets bogged down. And obviously, there's different houses of parliament there and Argentina he has to compete with. But Make no mistake, Daisy, his election is somewhat of uh, a miracle. Uh, if anyone has followed Argentine politics, I mean, I visited Argentina uh, in, oh boy, it would have been about 2003, I think, and, uh, you know, got to understand the lay of the land. That country has been seeped in this sort of weird leftist come Peronista uh, politics now for decades. At one point, it was on par with Australia, mm. and this is going back a fair bit in terms of standard of living, but the slip into socialism, and it is deep, deep corrupt socialism that enveloped that country, uh, I could tell you a lot about it, it looked mm. like they were never, ever going to get out of it. So Malay promises uh, a turnaround for Argentina, and I hope that happens. Oh, me too. It, it's it's fascinating, fascinating time. And look, uh, Malay is well known for his outbursts. We just saw one in that intro. That's, I think, my favourite one, where he goes on about leftists and what. Because we, we've all we all yeah. understand that. We've all we've all been there, sadly. Uh, but yes. one that's attracted quite a bit of attention. He is very controversial. Was his consideration of legalising the human organ market? Uh, what do you make of of that potential policy? Yeah, I think he, he had strong pushback from that and had mm. that idea for all of two seconds. <laughs> um, look, I, I think that, uh, 
it's probably the uber libertarian coming out mm. in him, uh, but it went back into the box. So hopefully that stays in the box. Yes. I think that um, <laughs> sometimes we can push our libertarianism way too far, and that was too far. Oh uh, yeah, I think I'd I'd have to uh, I'd have to agree with that. I mean, I, I I love libertarians, and libertarianism is one of those ideologies that is so beautiful in theory, but when you put it into practice, it does need to be sort of tempered here and there. And I'd say that whole thing about a uh, legalizing the human organ market is one of those areas where it has to be <laughs> tempered. Now, uh, indeed. Mm, now, look, George, China commented on Malay's vin- victory, saying the country looked forward to building on Argentinian-Chinese relations, but Malay has not been shy about his plans. It's going to be a lot of building. It's going to be a lot of building. He's not shy about those plans to cut ties with China. Um, do you reckon this will actually inspire confidence in the West to question our own relations with China? Well, I hope so, but uh, the way we deal with them, I mean, we're, we're feeding the hand that's binding us, quite honestly, we, we are. There is no motivation in Australian politics to economically decouple from China. I mean, the, what the government's done in the last few weeks there with China is basically double down on our economic coupling with China. It's going to pose a big problem for the future. I mean, um, if there ever is a blow-up in the Asia-Pacific and uh, China finds itself on one side of the ledger and us on the other, we got a big problem on our hands. So Malay is showing the way. I mean, he doesn't uh, mince around with his words. I mean, he called them assassins and he pointed out <laughs> that China's just not free. It's not a free country. So uh, why would we bother having anything to do with them? Uh, uh, really, we want to be with other free countries. So I think that there's a lesson in that for the West, that's for sure. I love it. I love it. I love it. I I, I so love it. And I can't wait to see uh, where he goes. And I'm sure you and I both wish him all the best for the future. Um, Now, speaking of free countries or, you know, countries that pretend to be free but aren't very, really very free in practice, I don't think. Let's step Mm. over to the US uh, for a second. Yes. Um, Something quite interesting has happened. Over 40,000 hours of footage from the January 6th Mm. Capitol riot is now trickling out to the public thanks to the new Speaker of the House. Um, Now, he's decided to release it all. I think this is a great thing. Um, We've heard Mm. about the so-called horrors of this so-called insurrection for two years, and this This is now some of what we're seeing, Uh, but the stories that we've heard about this supposedly horrible insurrection, and yes, there were bad elements of it, but they don't seem to be lining up with the footage. I mean, it's just sort of people walking neatly down corridors, George. What do you make of it all? Plightest insurrection in the history of insurrections, Daisy, (laughs) where people decided they were going to uh, not run around and topple statues, but... uh, take photos walking through, you know, aisles that were roped off, looking at all the statues and the artwork within the Congress. I mean, it was never an insurrection. That was CNN, MSNBC, uh, hyperbole, um, Democrat hyperbole. And, you know, I think that the release of this footage is going to have a lot of people eating their own words talking about it. Sure, it was a riot. Sure, to bust into the Congress as they did against orders uh, was, was most likely unlawful. But in terms of this being an attempt to overthrow the government, I mean, what a joke. Uh, It it was nothing of the sort. Um, Police were escorting people uh, throughout the place. They were very orderly. Uh, They weren't there to do anything but to protest 
it was a protest that got out of control and I think that's what it should be written down to. And uh, quite frankly, all these people who are still locked up at the moment over this, who really didn't cause too much of an affray, mm. uh, they haven't been to trial yet, they should be released. They are, they are quite honestly political prisoners at this point in time and that is, as you say, in what is supposed to be the land of the free, it's anything but at the moment. It, that is really so true. I mean, I, I feel so sorry for America now because I look back to 2020 and I think, my God, you guys could have had Donald Trump as your president again and instead you ended up with, you know, uh, little Mr Pixie fairy dust and all the people behind him doing awful mm. things. <laughs> That's the way I, uh, only way I yeah. can put it, but seriously. Um, now, look, Mike Johnson, who's the new Speaker of the House, who said he's going to release this footage, he's a Trump ally, the media's going insane over him because of that. Um, he has said releasing the footage was about ensuring transparency. But look, moves like this are rarely bipartisan, as we know. Who do you think is likely to benefit the most? Uh, look, I think uh, the truth. Uh, the mm. truth's likely to benefit the most because we've been having this uh, footage covered up. Uh, it's being talked about as if it was an attempt to overthrow the government. And I think that when people go through this, uh, whatever it is, 40,000 hours, uh, they'll find there was very little in the way of actual violence or anything intimidating. Sure, there was some uh, rough and tumble uh, bits of protest that were going on, but there was nothing like what the media made this out to be. So I think the truth will win out. And, uh, of course, that will that will certainly be of benefit to Donald Trump, who is facing, you know, trumped-up political charges uh, that he attempted to overthrow uh, the lawful governance of the United States. And this footage will show that, that nothing like that actually occurred. Well, exactly. And, um, you know, on the subject of truth, it's interesting, isn't it, how Democrats and a lot of Republicans, you know, like Liz Cheney, for instance, have fought tooth and nail over the past couple of years to keep all of this 40,000 40, 40, hours of footage under wraps because I think... Funny that. They, funny that. They know what the truth is, don't they? So the release of this footage um, is going to just completely undercut their whole narrative, isn't it? Yeah, it will. They wanted to keep it secret because mm. keeping it secret meant they were able to maintain their narrative, and the narrative was that uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, incited a, uh, a a coup uh, or an attempted coup, uh, uh, an attempted insurrection, and the footage will show that that is nonsense. I mean, we already know that it's nonsense, even if it was an insurrection, which it wasn't, mm. uh, because Donald Trump never actually incited anyone. He told them to go and peacefully protest. He told them to obey the law. Um, so, so what people did of their own volition uh, was up to them. But at the end of the day, that footage is going to show that there was no insurrection. It was a protest that got out of control. Many protests get out of control. You don't end up you know, behind bars for years and years and years because of that, uh, you don't end up actually, uh, you know, charging someone for high crimes and misdemeanours over that and disqualifying them from public office. But in the US, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm so glad that uh, the truth the truth will hopefully out, as they say, because there are a lot of I mean, there there are people who got 22 years in prison, George, for turning up at, mm. at, at that protest. And as as you and I both know, um, the doors just opened for them, like you know, which is suspicious in itself because those those you need a key to uh, sorry not a key you need a code to open those doors. A yeah. lot of people, I think, at least anecdotally, I heard they thought they were allowed. In 
in, didn't they? So how can you accuse them of an insurrection when they thought they were working within the law and just wandering into the building? Look, there's, there's um, wheels within wheels about this. Um, uh, the uh, the head of the Capitol Police actually is on the record about saying, you know, that there were too many bizarre things that actually happened that day uh, for there not to be something else going on. That is the chief of the Capitol, former chief now of the Capitol Police, mm. you know, who tried desperately to get other law enforcement to bring this protest that was out of control under control and he was denied at every turn. Uh, particularly denied through uh, requests to the Speaker's office, which controls what law enforcement comes in there. So, you know, that all smells like and sounds like someone was trying to ensure that this protest uh, did go out of control and was not brought under control for a very specific reason. And the specific reason was to get Donald Trump. That was the specific reason. Yeah, so they could dine out on this supposed insurrection that he supposedly incited uh, through the next election campaign. I mean, it is it, it just absolutely Correct. stinks. And I'm very, very sorry for Americans that they have to live through this level of just corruption and collusion um, in the upper echelons of their political class. It's, it's outrageous. Um, and speaking of things that are outrageous, George, I have to get your comment on this. Um, Osama bin Laden's letter to America has taken TikTok by storm with many Gen Z kiddies claiming it plunged them into an existential crisis after reading it. And it echoes what we've been hearing for weeks, that the October 7 attacks in Israel by Hamas were just self-defence. What, what are your thoughts on this? How have we ended up in this situation with our young people? Uh, well, uh, what's happened, Daisy, is that uh, the left has just eaten itself. I mm. mean, you, you, you know, the radical Islamists are the furthest thing from uh, leftists as you could possibly get. I mean, uh, these people uh, are basically Nazis with long beards and, and head coverings. Uh, yeah. That's what they are. And, and yet you have young people now celebrating uh, this um, ideology, uh, this um, this religion and and uh, this extremism. And I got to say that uh, <laughs> they better not really hope to hope that they get what they what they're asking for because um, you know, I can't imagine that uh, too many of these uh, latte sipping inner city uh, socialists that, um, you know, uh, uh, may have particular lifestyles. I can't imagine that they'd go do, down too well in a Osama bin Laden or, or country or any of his sort of ilk that's running a country. They'd find themselves in some pretty deep <laughs> water, probably literally, literally. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really bizarre. I mean, the left has just hollowed out, uh, you know, societal values amongst these people. They're clinging around looking for something to get a hold on, like some form of values, um, Osama bin Laden's values, which would have to be the furthest thing from their own, are what they're latching onto now. Uh, it, it's going to end up in a in a in a very sad state of affairs, that's for sure. Mm, and look, my theory about the letter, because I, I read the whole thing, my theory is that these kids just stopped reading after the Palestine bit. Because if you go into the rest <laughs> of the letter, and I pointed this out in my editorial, um, it condemns um, sexual liberation, it condemns being gay, go. it condemns women working, um, it, and it also condemns the separation of church and state, which is what American leftists have been kind of freaking out 
out about over the last couple of years because Republicans have been introducing anti-abortion laws. So they go, oh my God, it's the Christian right infiltrating our legal system. And then here are these kids praising a letter that blatantly calls for a combination of church and state called Sharia law. What planet mm-hmm. are we on, George, where this is happening? Well, that's what I say. Like they've they've hollowed out. Like like socialism and Marxism has just uh, you know it's rampant through the universities amongst the academics and the academic class. Uh, rampant in the media, obviously, or at least the mainstream media, and not good outlets like uh, ADH TV. Mm. But uh, you know it has it has ripped out the foundations in terms of values that these young people have. They, they are, you know, it's the closest thing to nihilism that we've probably had in generations that's uh, going on right now. So when they see something like this, and I, I agree with you, they probably haven't looked at the fine print here. <laughs> uh, they never look at the fine print. But, but they've grasped onto what they see as a worldview that is strong and that is anti-American, so it must be anti-capitalist by, by definition. Um but as I said, they better not hope too hard that they get what they're uh, what they're what they're desiring at the moment, mm. because uh, boy, um, there'll be a lot of trouble for them. Yeah, well, a be, lot of them. A lot of them. Yeah, be careful what you wish for, um, as as the saying goes. Now, George, uh, just before we go, we have to talk um, about something that planned for this weekend, which is quite alarming in Brisbane. There's a Christian family um, and it looks like their their personal house, their personal property will be protested by LGBT activists because this family complained about pride celebrations being um, um, undertaken in a local park. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, well, it's in Wynnum, a suburb of Brisbane. Uh, Bay Pride, I think, is what they call the event. Uh, was going to take place or is going to take place in a uh, a park that uh, is a children's uh, playground area, I'm told. It's a park that's uh, uh, frequented by families and kids. And, you know, look, uh, go on with the, with the Pride event, but, you know, we've seen these Pride events across the world where there's, you know, nudity, semi-nudity, there's certainly risque and highly sexualized stuff that's going on. So I guess the family has a point in complaining to whoever they complained about uh, that perhaps this park wasn't the best place to hold this event given that there's going to be kids around. Mm. Um, but for that, which I think is a, you know, that that's the, the, the organisers could have turned around and just said, no, we're not going to listen to you, or the authorities could have said no. Uh, and that would have been it. But for their trouble, for expressing their concerns, they are now having their home picketed by angry, uh, radical LGBTIQ protesters on Sunday. Uh, there has been someone who's associated, not organising it, but someone who's associated uh, with this Bay Pride event. I think that they're a volunteer and a key ally of the uh, of the organisers and, and a sponsor. Uh, I understand they're associated with the Australian Greens as well, they've run mm. for Brisbane City Council for the Australian Greens. Surprise, surprise, surprise! And surprise. they are now uh, rallying people to turn up outside a family home and oh, protest. Gosh. I mean, that is crazy. We haven't seen anything like that in Australia. I hope we don't see much more like that because what it's going to have is this chilling effect on free speech, where people who want to raise concerns uh, about, you know the safety of kids, about uh, ensuring that kids don't see inappropriate things, they're going to start thinking twice about that for fear that their family home is going to come under siege. So, 
Um, look, I, I hope that that common sense prevails here and that this protest doesn't go ahead. There's quite a number of sponsors, local sponsors of this uh, Bay Pride event who uh, I, I understand today they've been receiving a lot of emails, Daisy, uh, from people questioning whether or not they support this protest. Mm. Um, so that might liven the organisers up to denounce it, which they should, yes. and to say to all of their Bay Pride attendees, don't go anywhere near this family's home. Mm, and the thing is, George, um, what we've seen over the last few years with pride events and pride protests, I mean, like, I, I'm awful, like, you know, be, be comfortable in your sexuality, be who you are. And, but the problem is there's been this nefarious cultish activist group that have made pride parades and pride protests more and more and more and more and more sexual over the past sort of five mm. years. It didn't used to all be like that. It was, you know, rainbow flags and, you know, nice drag queens and, you know, but now you see these videos of children um, whose, pa pa whose parents take them to these parades and events with men just wearing gimp outfits and very little clothing and walking around on mm. leashes, none of which is what pride used to be. Um, Mike, you can hardly blame parents then uh, for being concerned that pride events are going to happen, you know, in, in the local parks. Do you think these radical activists are, are really actually doing a disservice to the community that they claim to represent? Uh, absolutely. Um, look, you know, a lot of these events have just become adult-only events where there's, as I say, semi-nudity, in some cases, full nudity right in front of children. Um, Sexualised acts, you've talked about some of them. Uh, we've seen videos of different uh, uh, pride parades um, overseas where this kind of carry-on is going on right in front of families. Now, you know, uh, some warped minds and parents might think that that's okay for their kids to see, but I can assure you that if it was on TV, it would not be PG rated. It would be M or R rated and kids would not be recommended to watch it. Uh, and they shouldn't uh, have to watch it in, in playgrounds that uh, kids frequent. So uh, these things should either not be done in public or they should be done somewhere where, uh, you know, children are not going to view it. And the only people that are going to view it are people who've determined that they're going to go there and view that kind of thing. Mm, yes, cons consenting adults, ex exactly. And there's a petition, isn't there, um, to help this family um, and to, to sort of try and undercut this protest at their house. Can you tell us about the petition? Yeah, look, it's uh, Citizen Go is running it uh, on Citizen Go. Dot org if people want to go and have a look at that. And I understand that uh, a, uh, a blogger and activist, uh, Bernard Gaynor, is also running a separate petition on his website, bernardgaynor.com.au. Fantastic. Thank you, George, for letting us all uh, know all of that. And thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. It has been a pleasure as always, and I do hope we see you again soon. Thank you very much, Daisy. Keep on keeping on. In the ever-present climate wars, nuclear energy is very much reviled by renewable ideologues like Australia's hapless climate minister, Chris Bowen. Regardless of the fact, it's really the only way to move the world on from using fossil fuels as a baseload source of power. Nuclear energy is essential to achieving the lofty political goal of net zero, and yet still, so many leftist and green politicians turn their noses up at it. 
Chris Bowen argues, among other things, that nuclear energy is just too expensive, which is a bit rich considering how Australia's power bills have soared in the time Labor has been in power, thanks at least in part to their renewable energy zealotry. However, as my next guest once infamously pointed out, it's impossible to ascertain the price of nuclear energy in Australia while there is a ban, while there is a ban implemented on using it. Duh. In fact, my next guest is so passionate about nuclear energy that last year he founded the organisation Nuclear for Australia and is planning a trip to climate conference COP28 with a petition for the Australian delegation to include nuclear power in Australia's energy plans. And believe it or not, he's only just 17 years old. It is such a treat to be joined again tonight by founder of Nuclear for Australia, Will Shackle, to talk about why Australia needs nuclear energy and to talk about his upcoming trip to speak truth to power at COP28. Will, it is fabulous to see you here this evening. How have you been? Very good. Thanks for having me on, Daisy. Well, it's my pleasure and I'm very excited to chat. So tell me, what has the response to your petition been like? Well, it's been excellent. So far, there's already 3,000 signatures on my petition calling for the Australian delegation at COP28 to support nuclear energy, which is, I think, incredible progress for a petition that I only launched a few weeks ago. So it shows that Australians support nuclear energy and that they, they, they support the Australian delegation at COP28 uh, in ultimately advocating for nuclear energy on the global stage. Mm, and look, with so much focus on providing reliable and carbon-friendly energy, you know, the, the government is all about net zero and green energy and all of that. Why is it, do you think, that the government is so reluctant to explore nuclear? Well, honestly, I don't know, because if the government was serious about tackling climate change, then they would embrace the cleanest form of power, which is undoubtedly nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is some of the lowest greenhouse gas emissions of any energy source. So if it was just about addressing climate change, then nuclear energy would be, in, would be embraced any day of the week. So it makes very little sense to me why Australia, when having a solution to climate change and when looking at our policies on climate change wouldn't have nuclear energy as part of our equation and also it just doesn't make sense why we would completely rule out a solution like nuclear when statistically we know it's probably the best and and the only guaranteed path to net zero that actually exists for a country like Australia. Mm, and the other thing about nuclear energy is that it gets painted as being very unsafe. You know, people think about the Chernobyl disaster, for, for instance. Um, but nuclear is extremely safe, isn't it? I mean, a lot safer than wind and solar, isn't it? It, it statistically is the second safest form of energy, which is incredibly important. Uh, and nuclear actually has one of the strongest safety records and the strongest safety cultures of any industry that exists. It's one of the most highly regulated industries and probably many people would think that that's a fair, that's a fair thing, that it is the hi most highly regulated industry probably of many industries. Uh, but it, when you compare it to other energy sources, undoubtedly it is one of the safest especially when you compare it to fossil fuels, which are known to kill 
millions of people per year from pollution. There's also, many would claim, also the direct harms from fossil fuels as a result of climate change. But specifically, I think that there is a huge safety risk which is posed by fossil fuels in regards to pollution. And when you look at the how nuclear is able to uh, be a very good solution to that, there's certainly a case for nuclear energy to replace the current fossil fuel generation in Australia just on safety alone. And I think I'll just point to one specific statistic. It's actually been estimated that as a result of nuclear energy off-putting fossil fuels, nuclear energy has actually saved 1.84 million lives because it's uh, basically avoided all of that pollution uh, and all of the deaths that inevitably do come from that pollution. So nuclear energy is an incredibly safe energy source and I would argue safer than any of the energy sources that Australia is currently using in our energy mix. Mm. And look, you mentioned pollution. Uh, that's an interesting point. We don't hear a lot about the discussion of pollution when you hear um, discussions about emissions. I mean, you know, climate change is very, very political. You know, there are, there are lots of political parties that mm. sort of, you know, um, stake their claim on it. There's, you know, factions of the left that want to use climate change to bring in sort of socialism and redistribution of that. There's a lot of political interests in there, which I think a lot of the public find really off-putting for obvious reasons. Why do you think there is not as much discussion of pollution and reducing pollution and giving people cleaner air um, when the government talks about its energy policy. Surely that's a much better way of getting people on board, isn't it? Well, look, I'm personally someone who believes that climate change does have an impact on human health. And I think that I, you know, why I support nuclear energy is because I think that nuclear is a solution to the climate crisis. But at the same time, it's also a really important solution to the energy crisis, which is often overlooked. I would say that I don't personally understand why we aren't talking more about the direct health impacts of pollution. I mm. think that's a huge issue. And it's certainly, I think, some something that everyone can agree on, regardless of your thoughts on climate change and whether you think it's human-induced or actually having impacts or will have impacts on human life. It is just undoubtable that around the world, especially in some of the most disadvantaged countries around the world, that pollution is a major issue and fossil fuels do contribute to that. So a solution like nuclear is incredibly beneficial when it doesn't emit the, uh, the, that same pollution into the atmosphere. And I think something really important to also point out is when people see those images of nuclear power plants and the grey smoke coming out of those nuclear reactors, that's not pollution, that's simply water vapour. Nucle nuclear reactors do not I think I'd really stress that point, that nuclear reactors are not contributing to the pollution issue around the world. And as, as a result of that, uh, incredibly uh, good on a safety comparison, especially compared to fossil fuels. Mm, I, I really do um, agree with you about the pollution argument. I mean, I, I, I live in Brisbane. I fly to Sydney for work mm. once a week. And I actually notice a difference in air quality just between Sydney and Brisbane because Sydney is, a, you wow. know, it's much more densely populated. There are more cars. Um, I go back to Brisbane and it still feels like city air, but there's a, there's a notable difference um, in the air quality, mm. I find, just going between the two kind of major cities. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think we should be talking about pollution a lot more because, as you say, even, it's, yeah, no, go ahead. You know, it's, it's even interesting, and I know that Dr Carl did a video on this, actually, I think, today, but 
when you compare fossil fuels and nuclear reactors, it's actually the fact is that when you burn coal, that releases more radiation than a nuclear power plant as well. So when it's things like pollution and also just general radio, radio, um, radioactivity exposure, uh, exposure, sorry, to radiation is drastically worse when it comes to a coal-fired plant coal-fired power plant. Now, I'm not going to say that that's an issue because people are able to tolerate uh, particular certain amounts, uh, reasonable amounts of radiation. Radiation is all around us. But it's important to point out some of these things which often go dismissed, like pollution and also like radiation exposure. Mm, Absolutely. Very well said, Will. Now, um, we have to talk a little bit about dear old Chris Bowen, who uh, (laughs) he doesn't like nuclear power. Um, He has said that nuclear is, to quote him, nuclear is too slow, too expensive and too out of sync with the competitive advantages in Australia. Will, what is your response to that? Well, actually, a few days ago, we learned that Australia is not on track to reach our climate targets and government subsidies are now what is needed to get us back on track to reach those climate targets. And ultimately, that's going to mean taxpayer money going towards renewables to prop them up. So I think it's very hard for people to believe that nuclear is not a solution that should be considered when we consider the solutions we're currently using and they don't look like they're able to stand up on their own legs without government support. So I I make this argument that we should not have a ban on nuclear energy, even if nuclear energy was the most expensive form of energy, even if it took too long to build, at least lift the ban and see what happens because no one would be silly enough to build a nuclear reactor if it was so expensive, but I think we'd actually be proven wrong. Because when you look around the world, there's 50 countries which are considering nuclear energy for the first time, which shows that there is a viability to nuclear energy. Uh, Even in China, they're building 22 nuclear reactors at the moment, the most in the world. If they didn't think nuclear energy was economically viable, then they would not be building those same reactors. And the last example, which I think is particularly telling, is actually the location of where COP28, the UN climate conference, will be held at the end of this year, which I'll be attending. That's in the United Arab Emirates. And they've got four nuclear reactors there, which are providing about a quarter of their electricity. And Mm. they were able to develop those reactors in about a decade. And they're also considering building a further two based on the success of those. So if a nation like the UAE, which is highly reliant on fossil fuels, and obviously due to its position near the equator, has lots of access to renewable resources like solar, still sees the need for nuclear energy, then why why isn't it necessary in Australia? And why wouldn't it stack up in Australia? You know, those questions Mm. still go unanswered. And I, I just think at very least we should have nuclear energy as an option on the table, regardless of the economics. Well, yes, exactly, especially when we have so much uranium in Australia. You know, it's not yeah. like we'd have to go far to find what we need to have right. nuclear power. It's in, it's in the ground. It's it's bizarre. Now, look, you mentioned COP28. That is so exciting that you're going. Um, tell us, what are you anticipating for the event? What's it going to be like? Well, it's actually, there's already some exciting announcements in terms of nuclear energy. So it's it's looking like it's going to be a major turning point. COP28 will be a major turning point for nuclear energy. It's going to be one of the first times that nuclear energy actually gets a platform at a conference like this. And there's a few things which are looking to be announced, such as 
The US and UK are anticipated to announce plans, a target to triple global nuclear energy capacity by 2050. They're also expected to sign a declara declaration with a coalition of other nations calling on financial institutions and the World Bank to mm. consider financing nuclear energy projects. And on top of that, uh, the US is also uh, expected to make the first uh, international uh, launched the first like international strategy for the commercialization of nuclear fusion technology, which is going to be very interesting to see what happens there because you know if fusion is realized, if the technology of nuclear fusion comes to reality, then that could be a silver bullet in addressing climate change. But the unfortunate reality here in Australia is that all forms of nuclear energy, both fission, and fusion, all fuel types, uranium, thorium, all coolants are banned in Australia and we're not able to even consider them. So whilst the rest of the world is making strides in nuclear energy and is doing so much in terms of innovation with all of these new technologies, we're left on the sidelines, not even able to consider any of it, which mm. makes no sense to me. And even if we were to lift the ban, we are at least going to be way down the line in terms of the people who are first, the countries who are going to first be able to access this technology. So there's an incredible urgency for Australia to lift the ban and to open our minds up to nuclear energy if we want to be uh, included in this nuclear renaissance, as many people are terming it. Mm. And, and yeah, look, you mentioned that there are other leading nations are absolutely pursuing nuclear technology in a big way. And yet Australia still holds on to this non-proliferation treaty. Well, do you think that Australia might be leaving it too little too late? Look, I think, first of all, in terms of the non-proliferation treaty, I strongly support that being in place because I don't think there's a place in Australia for nuclear weapons. And I'd make that distinction really clear mm. that I'm all for the peaceful use of nuclear technology. Nuclear uh, nuclear reactors don't mean nuclear weapons. I, I think, though, the main issue I've got is that the le multiple pieces of legislation, but at, both at a federal and local level in terms of the bans on nuclear energy, those need to be removed because Australia is out of step with the rest of the world. Australia is the only member of the G20 with a ban on nuclear energy. Wow. It's even taken an, an, a Japanese CEO to comment to The Guardian Australia to say that Australia, if we want to be a uh, renewable superpower, as many of our leaders are calling it, if we want to be a renewable superpower, then we need to embrace nuclear energy in order to do that if we want to be you know, a clean energy superpower because technically, sorry, nuclear isn't renewable. But if we want to be clean energy superpower, there, there are people overseas now telling us that we need to consider nuclear energy in order to do that. So Australia's current position is out of step with the rest of the world. If we want to be taken seriously on climate action, as many of our leaders want us to, then it simply does not make sense to rule out the cleanest form of energy, nuclear energy. Absolutely. And um, that's interesting you, you mentioned nuclear weapons there. I, I think you've actually hit on maybe one of the reasons that some people who don't know much about it might be hesitant about nuclear power. They think nuclear power will automatically uh, equate to nuclear weapons. Do you think maybe mm. the public needs to be, you know, just have more of an education campaign distinguishing nuclear energy from nuclear weapons to help people get over the line? 
Well, look, I'd, I'd make clear that a majority of Australians do support nuclear energy. That mm. actually came up with with some uh, polling from The Guardian in, in late October, which showed that majority of coalition voters and Labor's voters are more likely to support nuclear energy oh, wow. than not. Uh, so, but whilst, whilst it is true that a majority of people in Australia do support nuclear energy and lifting the bans, I think that there's a broad issue in terms of nuclear literacy. I don't think there's many people these days. There are, you know, there is a minority who still thinks that peaceful the peaceful use of nuclear energy equals nuclear weapons that just is simply not true and i think that we would there you know if australia mm. wanted to have nuclear weapons we'd find a way to do that anyway <laughs> yes. without having a civil nuclear power capability if anything that would probably give away the fact um if we were had all of these civil nuclear power reactors and creating weapons out of them it probably be a telltale sign that we were developing those nuclear weapons. But there's a clear distinction if it's enrichment and all of these other reasons why having a, a civil nuclear energy capability does not equal a, uh, mm. you know, a nuclear weapons program in Australia. I, I, I just don't think that there's that support in Australia for a uh, nuclear weapons program anyway. And I'm mm. sure we'd find out pretty quickly uh, if the Australian government was developing those nuclear weapons. So, yeah, I, I think that it's not too big of an issue. I think the bigger issue is probably in terms of the uh, understanding of uh, solutions to manage nuclear waste. Yeah. That's probably the biggest barrier at the moment in terms of people's support for nuclear energy, but non-proliferation admittedly is an issue for some people. Mm, that's that. That's fascinating. I, I think that's really encouraging to hear that poll, actually, to hear that most people actually mm. support it. Um, now, Will, it's been phenomenal to have you on. And what we're going to do now is put up the QR code to your petition you. on the screen. There you see all my wonderful ADHTV viewers. It is up there on the screen. The goal is 10,000 signatures. <laughs> Everyone is watching. Get out your phone. Open up the camera app. Hold it up to the screen. A little hyperlink should appear just underneath. Just tap that with your finger and that should pop up the website where you can sign Will's petition. Um, and if and you... And share it. And share it. And please, everyone, make sure yes. you share that petition on social media. Will Shackle, what you're doing is fabulous. It has been fantastic to have you on the program this evening and I do hope we see you again. Um, and best of luck yeah. at COP28. I can't wait to hear all about it. Thank you, Daisy. Well, that's all we have time for this week on The Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Thank you so much to my wonderful guests and to everyone who made tonight's show possible. Up next is The Other Side with Damien Khoury. Good night, world. I'll see you next week.